Hey, Zilpha. Hey, John. Where are you going to be on August 6th, 2010? Well, hopefully with you. That's right. Uh, maybe with some other friends. That's right, because August 6th, 2010 is the Mormon Expression live podcast recording. Oh, right. Doors open at 6.30, recording starts at 7, and uh, reception follows at 8. Oh, reception, does that include food? Yes. I'm so there. Tasty hors d'oeuvres. Now, the um, reception will be on the University of Utah campus, the Student Union Building in the Crimson Room. Unf Sounds nice. Unfortunately, uh, space is limited, so you need to get your ticket reserved. You can get a ticket reserved by sending an email to mail at mormonexpression.com. So we look forward to seeing everybody there. Hey, there's one other thing we want to talk about. You remember what that is? Sex? Not sex. It's close enough. It's the um, first annual Mormon Expression Personal Essay Contest. Do you remember this? Yes. Everybody who wants to participate can write a um, an essay, a, something having to do with Mormonism, and then they, they need to record it. Yeah, since this is an audio podcast, what everybody needs to do is record a personal essay Something about them and anything about Mormonism. It needs to be less than 10 minutes long, and you can submit it to us um, here at the podcast by July 1st. The winner receives what? Money. How much? $100. That's right, $100. So uh, mosey on over to the website to check out details on the personal essay contest. Get your tickets for the live show, and we'll see you there. Welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your host, John Larson, and tonight I'm joined by one of our regulars, the one and only Bridget. Hi, Bridget. Hey there, John. Uh, hey. Um, so tonight we're joined by um, two, count them, one, two, um, guys who we're going to call, at least to start out this thing, uh, apologists. And they're going to guide us through what exactly that means. Um, first of all, we have Kevin Barney. Hi, guys. Um, and we have Seth Rogers. Hi. Well, why don't we start uh, for each of you to kind of uh, let us know who you are. Kevin, um, why don't you take it first and uh, and let us know why you're uh, why you're here tonight. Okay. Well, um, I was uh, born and raised in the church. I'm descended from polygamists on both sides, so I'm, I'm one of those DNA Mormons. And... Um, I first uh, got interested in apologetics as a missionary. Uh, before my mission, I don't think I had ever encountered uh, anti-Mormon literature or polemic. And uh, so it was something I did encounter as a missionary, and I was kind of fascinated by it. And and it's something I've kind of uh, retained an interest in ever since. Um, I wear different hats. I mean, I, I also am an amateur Mormon scholar. Uh, mostly of ancient scripture, uh, but 
I, I'm also engaged in apologetics. I, um, I'm involved in FAIR, the Foundation for Apologetic Information and Research. And, uh, I, but I'm, I'm also involved, I'm on the board of dialogue as well. And also I'm a blogger. I mean, since this is going to be, uh, posted on your blog, a lot of the people that come there will probably know me best from blogging at uh, By Common Consent. Okay, great. And, uh, Seth, how about you? Well, like Kevin, I was born into the church. Um, I was, uh, born, um, at, at Provo, Utah. My parents met at BYU. They were kind of an odd match. Uh, my dad was a convert in the 70s, about when I was a few years before I was born. And um, he came from a from a somewhat non-religious household. His mother was religious, but his father wasn't. And um, he um, he joined the church with a vengeance, with a passion. <laughs> and uh, I think his stake president once called him the bulldog of the Lord at one point. But, um, yeah, he, he raised a pretty much orthodox home. We grew up um, with some pretty strict rules and uh, tended to follow them. Uh, my mom came from a different background. She came from a part member home. Her father was a Baptist, and her mother was a, another one of those DNA Mormons with uh, links all the way back to pioneers. Um, so... But she grew up with much more of an open outlook on life and everything. She was kind of a hippie in the 60s and all that. Um, so I inherited a little bit of both, a little bit from both of them. So from my dad, I kind of inherited uh, inherited uh, kind of an argumentative drive that kind of propelled me into the Internet world of online religious debate when I found it. But, um, but from my mom, I also... Uh, got kind of a open-ended inclusive view of religion so that's kind of kind of an odd mix but I, I was uh, thrilled to find the blogger knackle when I found it back in I think it was 2005 or something like that a little earlier than that I think but so I've been a regular on there ever since and uh, just recently, in the last couple of years, I kind of got into apologetics work. It's kind of a new thing. So I've been uh, I've guest blogged over at LDS Evangelical Conversations. I'm a permanent contributor to Nine Moons, and that's me. All right. Well, once again, welcome to both of you, um, Seth. You were talking a little bit about uh, apologetics there at the the end. I guess that's sort of the topic of the evening and sometimes i think apologists tend to be defined by their enemies so i'd like to give you a a, a shot at kind of walking us through what what maybe you each think apologetics is because i think that's a, a harder thing to pin down than it than it would seem at first blush it's kind of funny you know fair is an acronym for foundation for apologetic information and research and i I got involved in it uh, some years after it was organized. I had nothing to do with choosing the name. And in some ways, it's kind of an unfortunate name because uh, although most people outside Mormonism are well aware of what apologetics is, in, inside the church, it's, it's not a term that we historically have used in our tradition. And so uh, we constantly get emails from people who are just regular members of the church who are upset at us 
uh, and saying, why are you apologizing for the church? You know, like, <laughs> supposed, it happens all the time. <laughs> and uh, so we, we, we've gone to kind of extreme measures. I, I, I think, uh, you know, on our website, like the first thing you encounter is, is a definition of apologetics. And uh, um, it's true that a, a to apologize the way we normally use the word in English comes from the, the same uh, Greek word, but but uh, it has a totally different meaning. Apologetics is kind of the theology of, of defending religious faith by rational means. Kevin, and, um, I remember I had one professor in the classics department at BYU who, uh, his distinction on what it means, apology versus uh apologetics it was a an apology is i'm sorry i stepped on your foot and an apologetic is i stepped on your foot because you left it in the middle of the floor you dumb person <laughs> <laughs> so I, I always thought that was a good distinction in helping people to understand the difference between the two well it, it, yeah it's useful to understand the distinction although uh, you know, apologetics doesn't have to be so yeah, you know, uh, as that would suggest. Um, but it's more fun when it is. Yeah, it's, it's more of a fun way to think about it. Unfortunately, uh, yes. And it, on the Internet, um, a lot of people throw around the word apologist as a slur or an insult. And personally, I, I'm happy to be identified as an apologist. I don't perceive it that way. And again, uh, Bridget and I both went through you know, the same program in classics at BYU, and, and, and anyone who's done that will understand what apologetics is, and, and uh, you know, one of the things you read in Greek there is Plato's Apology, which is uh, Socrates' defense of himself, you know, uh, before the Athenians, and so it's, you understand it, it's, it's a defense, like, like a, you know, a criminal defense kind of thing. So yeah, apologetics is is uh, it's not apologizing in, in the modern English sense. It's it's a, uh, a defense of the faith, and any church that's big enough to interact with the world needs and and has apologists. I mean, there are Christian apologists uh, of various stripes. There are Catholic apologists. There are Jewish apologists. There are Muslim apologists. And yes, there are Mormon apologists. And Seth, you had a definition that uh, I think you wanted to share. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a few flip definitions I might give to the word apologist. I mean, like we were discussing earlier, I give one definition that um, apologetics is the um, it, apologetics is the art of um, of helping people not feel stupid for beliefs that they hold for entirely different reasons. Um, but um, which I think is true. I don't think most people. Um, I'd say the majority of people don't ultimately care originally about the stuff that we're talking about. At least a lot of it. Um, I think the foundations of faith are actually grounded somewhere else, um, other than other than whether there were horses in North America or what have you. Now, um, another another term for um, Apologist, you know, I mean, I might flip, kind of flippantly state that sometimes it seems to me that the word apologist is almost, the way it's used by some people, it almost seems to mean a person with arguments I haven't thought of before. <laughs> Those are great yeah. definitions. Well, I mean, 
I mean, I do get it thrown in my face, you know, like, um, you're not acting like a stupid Mormon, you know, therefore you're harder to debate with. And therefore you must be one of those apologists, you know, who are marginalized in the LDS sphere and don't really represent what Mormonism really is, whatever that's supposed to mean. But as far as um, what I really think the word apologist means, I think an apologist is simply someone who explores the teachings and arguments of his own religion in light of the positions of others. It's someone who knows the arguments of the other side and has applied his own faith to meet them. So, and for this reason, I think apologists are always going to be a kind of a rare bird. You know, because most people don't have the time or the resources to go and explore the other side. You know, and I think that's true of any ideological or faith position. Whether you're Catholic, Democrat, Republican, whatever, whatever you happen to be. Most people just don't have the time to explore the opposing camp, really, and articulate their arguments in light of it. I think that's what apologists do when they're at their best. Now, Seth, you bring up an interesting issue there. I guess the question is, who exactly is the audience? Uh, you know, it it might seem that since you're you're apologizing, you're apologizing to the outside world in the, in the traditional sense of the definition. But it would seem to me that a lot of the material produced by, say, Fair and Farms is is more aimed at the inside camp. Maybe maybe you two can address that issue. Yeah, yeah, actually, that's that's a good point. Um, first of all, apologetics by its nature is is, is defensive. I mean, uh, we we try to make it a practice not to uh, attack anyone else's faith. I mean, uh, we're responding to attacks against against our faith. Um, now, sometimes you might point out a double standard as, as a logical fallacy or something like that. Uh, but but we're, we have no interest in going after anyone else's faith. Uh, we're just trying to protect the faith of our own people. And then the other point I wanted to make, um, there, there are kind of different types and styles of apologetics. And uh, the, the type that, the only type that I'm interested in uh, is, is what I call educative apologetics. And um, what I mean by that is, uh, for me, apologetics is in, inward-directed. It's directed to uh, people in our church, members or sometimes investigators, who are adversely affected by negative polemic about the church that they encounter, usually on the Internet. Um, I have no interest whatsoever in getting on a message board and arguing with whoever's, you know, creating that material. Uh, there, there are people that like to do that, and uh, it has its purposes, but that is not me. It's just a matter of taste, perhaps. Uh, I have zero interest in doing that. My interest in apologetics is to help, uh, you know, the, the primary teacher who goes to prepare a talk, and she Googles some subject, and she kind of innocently, you know, finds herself uh, encountering something that she's completely unprepared for. And she goes and talks to her bishop about it. And, of course, her bishop is an engineer or something. I mean, he, he has no idea what this is even about. And, um, 
and these people are, are kind of lost. And uh, they, they don't really have anywhere to turn. They, they don't know the literature. They don't know the history. Um, so my interest in apologetics is to, it, I see it as an educative function to, to help that person uh, understand the history or the, to put that issue in a broader context. And, you know, when one of those things comes up, I, I, I say to myself, well, I'm familiar with that issue and it doesn't bother me, or I've worked my way through it, why doesn't it bother me? Or how did I work my way through it? And then I try to take that and apply that, uh, that knowledge uh, to this individual and, and, and help them uh, understand how to work through that issue. So for me, that's what apologetics is. It's, it's about uh, you know, basically educating the saints uh, about the, you know, these obscure issues of doctrine and history and scripture and practice uh, that come up that, that catch them by surprise and, and they have no idea how to deal with them. Yeah, I think I think I'd say myself that um, that that's kind of an ideal that I wish I followed <laughs> in apologetics. I, I kind of, I kind of would like. I shoot for that, and I'd like to say that I was there. But you know, dog, doggone it, going on the offensive is just sometimes so much fun, and it sometimes <laughs> seems to, it sometimes seems to get you, um, get you some good results. You know, I mean, maybe you could call it the dark side of the force or something like that, right? But um, you know, I mean, um, I guess, I guess an example might be, um, you know, a, a post I wrote a long time ago during Romney's campaign when um, some New York Times uh, columnist was attacking his polygamous past or whatever. And I basically told him, I basically responded to him saying, you know, I'll apologize for my my polygamous past when you apologize for your monogamous past. You know, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, that's not fair. It's polarizing, but boy, it was fun, you know? <laughs> so, but... It was a good post. But... but yeah, I mean, and sometimes I think, you, you know, and I feel a little bad. I feel a little bad saying this because it always irritates me when I'm debating with evangelicals and they try to bring up Paul and his aggressive tactics against, or his supposed aggressive tactics against uh, falsehood or whatever. You know, but I think sometimes, I think sometimes there might be a place for going out there and affirmatively staking a position. And you know, taking the debate really to the core, I, the core ideas of the other camp, and and trying to figure out where we stand with relation to them. Now, you know, I mean, and how you do that while still uh, while still maintaining uh, Christian virtues of charity and something is another topic entirely, I guess. But and that's probably the trick of it. But I don't know. I think there's a I think there's a place for apologetics to occasionally go on the offensive a little bit. I think I think you see a bit of that in some apologists' work, you know, that um, basically engage the theology of mainline Christianity, for example, and try to grapple with what it means and what Mormonism has to offer that's better. You know, because, I mean, because at a certain point, we do believe that we're offering something good that other people could benefit from. 
you know, otherwise we don't have any business being out here, I think. Yeah, I, I, you know, the, go ahead, go ahead. Well, as I say, there's another, there's another benefit of what, what we might call kind of engagement apologetics, which is, you know, uh, where you're engaging directly with, with you know, critics uh, of, of the faith. Um, and, you know, FAIR, let me tell you a little bit about the history of FAIR. Uh, I, I was not around when FAIR was started, but, but from my understanding, FAIR originated in the late 90s uh, on the AO, old AOL message boards uh, because Mormons were participating on those boards, but, um, uh, you know, they, they were, you know, uh, you know, constantly shut down and, and uh, uh, you know, attacked and, and all of that. And so the Mormons who were participating on those boards kind of banded together uh, in self-defense almost. And that was kind of the, the first nugget of what became FAIR. And so FAIR originated in an Internet environment. FAIR has always been an Internet-based organization. And it originated uh, out of battle that took place on message boards. So that's kind of its origin story. I mean, it originated with that kind of engagement apologetics. And, um, and in some ways, that, that's a good and necessary thing, especially in its infancy, because, uh, you know, Seth and I are both attorneys, and uh, the law you know, uses the adversarial system. And, uh, you know, before the Internet, uh, you know, Mormons and their critics typically didn't really engage each other directly. You know, maybe as a missionary, you'd get involved. In, in some Bible bash or something. I mean, that, that might be the kernel of the idea. But uh, once the Internet came along and we had message boards, all of a sudden they're talking directly to each other. And it caused, I think, all sides involved to, to have to hone their arguments. Because, if you, you know, when you're not talking directly to, to the other side, Sometimes you're using arguments that aren't going to fly with the other side, and you, but you don't know that because you, you haven't actually engaged with them. And so uh, it, it causes you to, uh, to realize that a lot of your arguments you know, are, aren't uh, very powerful and they don't work. And so there kind of went through a period of time where you know, people had to kind of realize that, that you know, traditional uh, – Arguments about about these issues often, you know, were, were insufficient, and I think critics uh, had the same experience. You know that uh, you can't say "do" the word "do" is in the Book of Mormon. That that proves something. You know, that's the stupidest argument you, you can make, and I, I don't think you see that made anymore because people have figured that out. That's a stupid argument. So I, I think both sides had to kind of hone their their argumentation. And so I, I think in that sense, engagement apologetics serves a useful function. Uh, I, I think it's good in a way. You can go to, onto the Mormon apologetic discussion board, and there's discussions of anything you can imagine relating to Mormonism, and there will be people on there who are apologists and people who are critics and people who are kind of um, above the fray and people from all different perspectives, and it's, it's like the Wild West. And, and I think there is a, a, a use 
for that and, and, and in some sense a need for it. Some people are good at that. Um, you know, for me, it's just a personal thing. That's just not my taste. Uh, you know, I, I, I like to be civil and polite, and, and I, do not, I do not enjoy rolling around in the muck. You know, I, I, I like to be above the fray a little bit. So, I, so I you've sworn to... off discussion boards now, Kevin? <laughs> well, I, 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 I go and look there once in a while, but uh, I, I very rarely participate on discussion boards. I asked because, uh, if yeah. I recall, you and I met on ZLMB years ago. Probably, yeah. I, I, ZLMB, for those who don't know, is an old uh, discussion board that is, I think, I assume defunct now. It's a ghost um, town. Yeah, but I, I, I I'm more. In, I, I prefer the environment of blogs to discussion boards. I would I, agree. Again, I don't. I don't like message boards. Myself. Yeah, yeah, they they definitely have their problems, but I I do like uh, what Seth was saying about sort of, um, you know, I think a lot of people involved in the discussion from all points of view sort of like it. They like the 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 conflict. They like the adversarial nature, and there's not anything wrong with that per se. Um, you know, it just attracts some and and repulses others, and I think that's just a matter of personalities. Well, maybe that brings up a question that I wanted to ask at some point in this night. Um, I think I know you both because you've both had some interaction with, uh, friendly interaction with other faiths. And uh, I thought maybe you guys could talk about how you got involved in interfaith discussion. Was it purely for the apologetics? Well, um, I, if you don't mind, I guess I'll go. Um, well, I think the first um the first time it happened for me was um was um I just kind of got interested um in uh Christian arguments. And I started um reading up on some Christian blogs. Um, such as um uh Mere Comments, Touchstone Magazine's blog, for example. Or um and later uh Parchment and Pen blog as well, which is um which is pretty much a general evangelical blog. Um, but, um, I started, uh, reading up on them, and at one point I found myself sucked into a, uh, pretty much knockdown drag out fight on the Mere Comments blog that lasted for about three months, with, uh, basically just me and a whole bunch of Christians, and, and I was the only Mormon on there. Now, um, I don't know, on some points I think I held my own, but I think I got my hat handed to me on quite a few points. And um it was um it was exhausting. Um my wife noticed, you know, <laughs> I mean she she noticed that I my I myself was kind of um a little bit irritable and on edge and uh, a little bit exhausted from the whole thing. Um but at the same time it you know it was it was kind of a rush to be honest. It was um exhilarating, you know. It was like a whole new world had kind of opened up at that point. And um, I, even as I was getting shot down on certain points and holding my own on others, I found I found myself kind of exhilarated, you know, in the, in the way that you feel exhilarated by facing a good opponent in sports or something like that, where you really love the game, you know. And I just realized that I liked, I kind of liked it. So um, from there, I kind of uh, branched out and eventually... 
found LDS Evangelical Conversations, which uh, Bridget uh, blogs on regularly, along with uh, Tim. Another. You were there long before I got there, though. <laughs> right, right, I was. Um, actually, I, I don't know. Did I tell you about that blog or not? Yeah. Um, anyway. No, I kind of found it on my own. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's how I found it. And, um, and, and Tim was polite, you know, and, um, I actually found a place where I could, um, um, discuss, discuss the whole thing respectfully. And I, and I kind of grew up there. And from, and from that point, I kind of branched out and started going on other blogs, some of them much less friendly. Um, you know, at, at present, I kind of, um, I kind of pop up all over the place. I kind of scan um, a lot of different blogs for mentions of Mormonism and go there and comment. If it seems like um, doing so would be worthwhile at all. You know, and it's hit and miss, but, um, but but that's kind of how I got involved. I mean, I started in the blogger knackle, but eventually moved kind of beyond that. I don't really comment too much on the blogger knackle anymore. It's like I've kind of said what I had to say there. And, um, and, and, and what, and having found what I feel about Mormonism and my grounding in Mormonism, having kind of refined it and found it on the blog and that, well, I've kind of moved beyond that and I'm taking it elsewhere, I guess. Now that, that brings up a really interesting issue. Um, I, I believe it was last year, Elder Ballard kind of issued a, a challenge to sort of wrestle back the internet, um, for the, the faithful to make a, a more faithful presence out there. Um, and we just we just were talking about sort of the adversarial nature of it and kind of the the, the scrappy nature of, of the fight. Um, do you think that there's a, a downside to the whole apologetic scene that there are those who are maybe put off or um, repulsed by by the debate? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, one of my friends on yeah. Um, uh, one of my friends on the internet is always um, talking about how we seem to be more concerned with boundary maintenance um, than we are with really understanding the other side. Um, for uh, just to give an example, over the uh, issue of the Trinity, what's the nature of God in three persons? I found you know a lot of the Mormon rhetoric that you get from Talmadge and other past Mormons, you know, and, and the rhetoric I grew up with is very tritheist. But, um, and, um, you know, so I mean, that, that's considered a heresy by, um, by the Catholic Church, among other, um, Christian religions. But, um, you know, I think a lot, of, but, but if you actually read the Book of Mormon, it seems to contradict a strictly tritheist view of three distinct personages who just basically play for the same team. Um, but why do we do that? Why, why is the rhetoric so tritheist when the scriptures aren't necessarily? And I think what we're doing is we're basically just trying to distinguish ourselves from the Baptists, you know, who we view as raving modalists, basically. And um, basically modalism being the idea that, you know, all three beings are just one big blob, basically, or one god has different hats or something like that. But, um, and on the other side, debating with evangelicals, I've found that the moment they think a Mormon is in the room, they'll all, they'll all up the modalist rhetoric accordingly. So, you know, it's kind of like the married couple I saw in the foyer of the church, you know, 
where the husband was obviously easygoing and the mother was very uptight about the kids. And the more easygoing the husband got, the more uptight the wife would get to compensate for him. So I think sometimes we're basically more concerned with uh, with them um, shouting out saying, hey, I'm not like the Baptists or, hey, I'm not like the Mormons, than we are about really finding out what we believe and explaining it. Well, on your question about, uh, you know, does it turn some people off, uh, I, there's no question that it does. Um, I mean, it turns me off <laughs> to some extent. <laughs> I mean, that, um, that, that's why I, I say I, I only kind of practice in, in a limited stripe of apologetics, the, what I call the educative uh, kind, uh, which, by the way, I, sh- I should give credit where credit's due. I, I picked that term up from Roger Keller, who was a speaker uh, at one of our fair conferences. He's a BYU religion professor. I introduced him that year. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's uh, Bridget uh, introduced him as our speaker. And I think he gave me a C in my religion class. <laughs> oh, he probably deserved it. <laughs> I did. <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, he, so he's addressing fair, which is you know the big apologetics group, and, and, and basically said he, he really didn't have much use for apologetics unless it's educative apologetics. And, you know, when he said that, the light bulb went on over, over my head because I didn't know how to articulate my feelings about it, but that was exactly my feeling. And I just didn't have the vocabulary to be able to, to express it until he, he said that. So that's that's why ever since then uh, I've kind of borrowed his his terminology of educative apologetics. Yeah, you know one problem is a lot of people who may not know the word apologetics, you know, think that they're apologists, but but they suck at it. You know, <laughs> um, for, for example, look at the uh, the comments. Uh, of the Salt Lake Tribune or Deseret News on any article having to do with the church. Do I and, have to? <laughs> <laughs> and, and you get these these Mormons who think that they're defending the, the you know, writing to the defense of the church, and, but, but they're so bad at it, it's just embarrassing, you know? And of course, I, as a matter of policy, I, I won't even read those things, they're so bad. And, and so you have people who, who think that they're uh, you know, riding in on a white charger, defending the the, the church, uh, but really they're they're not helping and they're making matters worse. So so that's that's one problem with you know, I I, I fully support Elder Ballard's call, but uh, you know if everyone rushes in, um, you know we're angels fear to tread. You know sometimes that's that does more harm than good. Yeah, I, 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 and that's a, that's a thing too. I mean, everyone has to kind of engage at the level that they're at too. And, um, I, I think the educative model also assumes that the apologist in question has, uh, has in some sense fully realized where they are in the church and what the church means, which puts them in a position to really explain what the church is about. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I don't think all apologists are necessarily at that point. Um, some of them, like uh, Kevin mentions, are, are are just babes in the woods, you know, who are running off to get beat up. But um, 
I think some of them already um, have been beat up, but they're just they're still going and oblivious to it. Anyways, sorry, keep going, Seth. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, well, but I think some, but I think some others, you know, myself included, are actually out in the apologetics world, trying to find out what their own religion means and what exactly it means. Um, And in some sense, I don't think this is something you can ever define within your lifetime. This is something. This is a work you can never finish. But that's a major motivator for me being on the internet is to try and figure out what exactly my religion means. Um, and the way my personality is wired, I I just naturally get that sense from kind of poking the hornet's nest a little bit sometimes to see what happens. You know, you learn a lot, and you can learn a lot from uh, from stirring up trouble on occasion. And I think that's a major motivator with me. Um, and one of the reasons why, while I shoot for the informational, and, and sometimes, quite frankly, I mean, I'm not, I'm not ripping on Kevin's position at all. I mean, I think, um, I think his, um, his ideal really is probably something, probably something I ought to incorporate more. And when I think about it, I think some of my best, um, apologetics work has been when I just came in to inform. And didn't get, um, and didn't take things personally. But at the same time, there's another drive here that's, um, propelling me to try and find out what exactly Mormonism is and what it means to me and what my place in it, within it is. Which is, well, um, sometimes the best, um, articulated by conflict sometimes, in my case. Well, here's one for you guys that, uh, has to deal with your experience with apologetics. Um, I'm curious, are there any issues that, let me make this kind of a two-part question, and you can choose which part to answer. Um, are there any issues that used to trouble you, but you found the LDS apologetics for it really sound, and it really helped you out? Or alternatively, what do you think is the area that LDS apologetics has done the best job of handling? Well, on, on the first question, I don't know if this is exactly what you're asking about, but uh, first of all, very little about the church uh, has ever troubled me. And I, I think part of that is it's just a personality quirk. You know, I, I just uh, am able to let things roll off my back, um, more, you know, more easily than other people do, perhaps. Um and so maybe that's why I have a good personality to be an apologist because I, you know, by this time I know where all the bodies are buried. You know, I, I there might be some marginal argument I haven't heard before, but any major argument against the church I, I'm familiar with. Uh, but as I encountered those, you know, typically, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have a problem with them. But for me, the, the one thing I recall that really threw me for a loop uh, was the Salamander letter. And uh, the Salamander letter, for those who may not know, was purported to be a, a letter um, uh, written by Martin Harris that, that described uh, when, when Joseph, you know, opened the, the stone box with the gold plates that uh, uh, that there was a salamander in there that then transfigured himself in, into uh, an angel or something like that. It's been so long since I read it, I can't even describe it accurately. Uh, and, and I was completely unprepared for that. And, and that one threw me for a loop. 
Um, and so, you, you, but there's a couple different directions you can go. You, you could you could freak out about it and and you know pull your hair and run around in a circle, or and it's kind of like the, the Matrix, you know, where where you can you can either take the red pill or the blue pill, and I forget which is which. But uh, uh, you know, once you take whichever pill that uh, you know opens your eyes, you know, there's no going back. So the remedy is is to to roll up your sleeves and 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 go to the library and learn about it. You can't go back to not knowing about the Salamander letter after you've read it. You know, you can't unread it. You can't remove it from your memory. So you don't have any choice but but to uh, to, to go to, go to school on it. And that's what I did. I I, I went to the and of course this was before there was really any Mormon literature on the subject. It had been published in the church news, and that was about it. And people were I wasn't the only one that was upset about it. A lot of people were scrambling. Uh, but I, you know, I went to the library and I, I uh, read nine LDS historical uh, literature about folk magic uh, from a slightly early per- earlier period, and uh, that was very helpful to me. I was able to put it into a historical context, and then over time, as Mormon historians were doing the same thing at a much higher level than I, I was, I'm, I'm not a historian, uh, and they began to publish articles and, and put this into its historical context. And, uh, and eventually, I, you know, I, I, I was okay with it. But I knew that since it had freaked me out, it was probably freaking a lot of other people out. I, I was a gospel doctrine teacher at that time. And I took it upon myself, no one asked me to do this, but I just took it upon myself to devote an entire gospel doctrine class to the Salamander letter. And this is when it was still pretty, pretty new stuff. Um, and certainly before it had been determined that it was uh, a Hoffman forgery. So I, I, uh, I taught a class that it had the stake president in there, the bishop was in there, you know, the class was standing room only. And I taught that class, and everyone walked out of there feeling fine about it. And largely from that experience, I've been known as an advocate on the Internet of of what's called uh, inoculation, Uh, the idea of, you know, uh, helping people to to deal with standard anti-Mormon claims by by taking the initiative and teaching them about, about them. And in a faithful context, where I was able to uh, explain to people about the, the Salamander letter, uh, no one had a problem with it. Well, people only had a problem with it if, if they were hit over the head with it unexpectedly, and they were unprepared, and they had no context and nowhere to turn. So um, that, that was kind of my main experience with something that came out of left field and cracked me up upside the head. Uh, and really, that's the only thing I can remember that ever did that to me. You know, I, I would agree with the inoculation thing. I think that um, a lot of things that are problematic and that Fair addresses are things that would not be problematic if the first exposure that Mormons had to them was in a faithful, supportive context. For example, Joseph Smith translated using a seer stone in a hat. I mean, is that supposed to prove the church isn't true or something? I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, putting your face in a hat so the church is not true. That's a ridiculous conclusion to reach, just based on that fact alone. 
but um, but people see that, but people go out, you know, online and get hit with this and get confused about it, get hurt about it. Personal pride comes into it, and then accusations about why didn't, why wasn't I aware of this, and all that sort of stuff. When all that's added on top, it becomes an issue. But as for myself, you know. And, I'm, I'm sorry, Bridget. I'm going to give you kind of a boring answer too on this, but um, oh no, I, di- I, I didn't. I didn't find anything. I don't think anything particularly bothered me about the church as I went online. Um, no particular fact. Um, you know, I mean, the only thing that bothered me was me wrestling with what the nature of my own beliefs was, but it didn't have much to do with any of the apologetic um, facts that are out there, or alleged facts that are floating around out there on the Internet. Um, I, I found it all fascinating. I found it all very fascinating and um, quite exhilarating, actually. I mean, I'm the sort of person, I read I read Richard Bushman's uh, biography of Joseph Smith brought stone rolling and read about how he got into an argument with one of his leaders during Zion's camp and threw the camp bugle at him. You know, I just laughed. I, I thought that was great. You know, I mean, great story, you know. And because, you know, I grew up in the church with this, you know, with maybe the simplistic uh, vision of Joseph Smith, you know. That was partially my fault, partially the fault of the culture that I was in. But I always kind of rebelled against it. I didn't like the idea of uh, Joseph Smith as some sort of marble saint. And so when I came on the Internet, and found out all these stories about him as a real person. I mean, I, I was just thrilled. And I, to me, it made him so much more of a person. And it made the religion so much more a religion I could actually relate to. Because I didn't feel like I had it, had as much of an emotional connection to it before. But, um, but discovering Joseph Smith to be a real person was actually a real wonderful experience for me. So I don't think, no, I don't think it shook me that much. Um, even some of the more serious allegations that were more serious than just throwing a camp bugle on somebody. But, yeah, so, um, I mean, as far as the toughest, I will give you the toughest issue that I've had to argue about. I would say that's probably the Book of Abraham. Now, the Book of Abraham is a tough issue simply because the expertise needed to competently argue it is so high. You have to understand about three different languages in the first place to really argue it. And you have to be well-versed in the history. It's a tough subject to argue it. There's a high barrier to entry, which makes it kind of a breeding ground for people to prey upon the ignorance of people in the subject matter, I think. Another, another tough subject, which historically, for, for fair you know, for a long time, we just did not have adequate material on this subject, is, is polygamy. Uh, polygamy is tough because, A, you know, you can't escape it. I mean, the church, that that was their identification, you know, for, for half a century. You know, they fought the federal government tooth and nail to, to re- retain it. So, you know, it's there. You, you know, there, there, there's no getting around it. And um, 
a lot of people today have an emotional response to it because, you know, quite frankly, especially women, uh, because they, you know, kind of interject themselves into those situations. And, and you know, that's, uh, it's not something that, you know, rational argument is, is always going to be able to, to resolve. Um, we, we, we do have uh, much better material on polygamy these days. We, we, you know, have a, a, a scholar who that has, that, that's his particular area of interest who's done some excellent work. Uh, so, so we're doing much better on that subject than we were originally, but it's still a tough subject. And at a fair conference once, we, we did, I actually blogged about this. We did kind of a little poll for people to, to kind of list what they think the toughest, you know, issues are, uh, for the church in terms of apologetics. And my recollection was that by far the number one winner was polygamy. And I would agree with that result. That, that's that's a difficult issue for the church and what one we can't escape. I think it's true. Yeah, I think the only way I got beyond that issue was trying to, um, but was trying to place the was trying to place the notion in a higher eternal reality, a higher theolo- theological reality, kind of get beyond the the muck and uh, rumble, you know, going on down in the dirt here on Earth, right? And um, get beyond how people did or did not um, do it very well here on Earth. Get beyond that and see what's, um, and see what sort of implications the practice has on our theology as a whole. But, you know, the tough thing there is, you know, I'm pretty much on my own when I do that. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not a topic that... Um, that the church really gets an official opinion about, nor am I entirely convinced they should. But, um, but you know, I mean, you want to go there, you're kind of on your own, and um, which leaves you open to open to people, you know, saying that you're an outlier in the religion, right? And therefore, your your arguments don't matter. Now, now that's an that interesting gets back to our definition of apologist, I think. Yeah, that's an interesting point you bring up. Um... You know, a few years ago, John Charles Duffy made the argument that the doctrine or or the discussion around the doctrine is largely being driven by apologetics these days. And I, I can see where he's coming from, because if you want to find interesting talks about the church, its doctrine, its history, you're not generally going to find them from the brethren. Uh, how, would, how would you guys respond to that uh, accusation? Well, I don't, yeah, I don't think, yeah, sorry, I, I don't think the brethren do get into that that much. I'm not sure it's their job either. Go ahead. I think it's, sorry. Well, no, that's fine. I, I think it's. I think. I think it's generally true, and I think. I think it's part of the evolution of apologetics and and the nature of of church leadership. Because it used to be that that the apologists of the church were its leaders, and so uh, you know you 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 had, you know, the more academically trained and intellectually oriented apostles, you know, were the church's chief apologists. You know, Talmages and Wistos and Roberts and and those, you know, in the nineteenth century, uh Orson Pratt and um you know Shodal, Jean Shodal, uh, you know, people like that. Uh as time has gone on and the church has become bigger and international and, and, you know, more challenging to, to, to manage. 
and uh, the bureaucracy has grown. Uh, you know, it, it just doesn't work for uh, the leaders of the church to be on the front lines in the realm of, you know, theology and apologetics. Um, so so I, I, I think the observation is probably accurate to some degree, because uh, if you want to talk about, you know, the issue of multiple mortal, mortal probations, well, you're not going to find that in the ensign, and you're not going to find it in a general conference talk. Um, so the discussion about an issue like that, you know, is, is going to be, you know, in the polemical slash apologetic type literature or or in scholarly literature, you know, um, you know going over the, the history of that issue. But apologetics uses scholarly scholarship. So in, in that sense, it's, it's all kind of the same. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, interesting is theological and doctrinal and historical and scriptural issues typically aren't, aren't dissected over the pulpit of general conference uh, or, or written about in the ensign anymore. Uh, they used to be to a greater extent than they are now. So uh, apologists are not trying to, to make, you know, new doctrine or anything like that. They're just they're trying to deal with these issues as they exist. But I, I can certainly see how some people would have the perception that, you know, apologists are driving the bus. Well, I don't think this is a uniquely Mormon problem either. I mean, compare the speeches of Franklin Delano Roosevelt to those of, you know, Bill Clinton or George Bush, Jr., you know, you can try and compare the speeches, or even our current President Obama, you know, I mean, the current speeches are just boring, right? They don't say anything, aside from platitudes and things we all agree on. You know, this is a societal problem. CEOs are like this, too. You know, sports managers are like this. Well, we went out there and we did our best. You know? But what about other religions, Seth? Would you say other well, religions well, have this problem? I think so, you know, when you're talking about very high-level leadership, you know, who have responsibility for a very wide range, you know. Uh, but, you know, that point taken, but I think this is just a cultural problem, you know, that some religions have avoided, but others have not. You know, there's a certain level at which you're just managing too many disparate interests. Well, it, and I think you also made the point yourself, Bridget, at one point, you know, that um, when evangelicals disagree, they just go off and do a new church. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, we're Mormonism is not like that. But Mormonism is not like that, as, as I think you noted. That um, we have to keep everyone together in one tent. You know, and you can't do that when you're making polarizing statements. Interesting. Uh, the charge has also been levied that the religion, the Mormon religion, as represented by, say, farms or fair, may be considerably different than the religion that's commonly believed or practiced in the pews, that there is kind of a gulf between, say, the, the Internet religion and the religion that, that occurs in the chapels. How, how do you all respond to that charge? Well, um I think that um, the chap I think the chapel views would be more similar to the internet views if they were out there dealing with the same arguments. But they don't have to deal with the same arguments. So you know, so they 
so they have a different experience of the religion and a different way of articulating it. But, you know, I, I think that's why, anyway. Yeah, I, I, obviously I'm familiar with the, the genesis of, of that distinction, and um, I, I, I think there's something to it. Um, uh, you, you know, when you say Internet Mormons, I mean, it's not just apologists. I mean, you look on the blobbernacle, and typically the, the, those that's a very self-selected group. They tend to be young. They tend to be well-educated. Uh, they, they tend to be very knowledgeable about the church. And, and, and even though most of them are not, don't perceive themselves as apologists, uh, you know, you can throw out any obscure issue regarding the church, and most of those people are, are familiar with it and, and not, not bothered by it. Uh, so, so that's, that's a very unusual subset. Uh, you, you go into an average ward, and that's not the case. You, you've got a much broader range of people. You, you've got, you know, my my own mother, you know, doesn't even know how to do email. She she, she doesn't even know how to leave a message on a phone. I mean, she won't leave a message on someone's phone. She says, "Oh, I don't know how to do that." Um, so so you've got a you've got a huge gap in terms of comfort and familiarity with the resources of the internet there. And so, yeah, I, I think there's something to it. I, but I, I think, for example, the, the apologists I know all consider ourselves faithful, believing, we're active in our church communities. Uh, you know, we participate, uh, you know, with, with them. And uh, I, I don't think we really perceive ourselves as other in that way. But it's true that, that uh, kind of by definition, we, we have a certain education on these issues that maybe your average Mormon uh, doesn't have? To a certain extent, um, to a certain extent, I mean, in some ways I find the question interesting, but in other ways I'm really not interested by the question of whether there's a distinction between Internet and Chapel Mormons. Um, Simply because, you know, um, this is a faith where you gain your own testimony. You gain your own your own conviction of the church, and you're repeatedly encouraged to do so. So, am I different from uh, other Mormons? To a certain extent, I don't really care if I am or not, because ultimately this is my religion, and it's my testimony, it's my faith, and I have to own it. I have to take ownership of that and um, and come up with the conclusions that I come up with after reading the scriptures, reading the history and the statements of modern prophets and taking it all together. So, yeah, I mean, so a part of me doesn't really care if I'm driving the bus or not, because in some ways we're, we're encouraged to do so. And all right, well, is, oh, sorry. Sorry, finish up. I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I think there is a lot more... I think there is a lot more diversity of opinion held privately within the Mormon church than people give it credit for. I mean, we all wear white shirts, suits, and ties, right? And we all we all gather in the same conference center, and there's millions of us and all that sort of stuff. I mean, you know, it's easy for people to think that the church is basically one big Borg cube from Star Trek, right? But, um, 
really a private on the private level. There's a surprising diversity of beliefs. I mean, I read one one blog post from a Jewish blogger who has a bit of an interest in the Mormon Church, talking about how um, how they were um, taking a motorcycle tour through Utah and stopped over in Manti um, and just sat and just sat in on the on the local high priest gathering um, and Sunday school gathering. And they, and they talked about how there was just a wild variety of viewpoints being shot out in that high priest group and in that Sunday school. And the Jewish um, blogger who was well familiar with Mormonism said in a lot of ways these guys were well off the reservation. But in, in another sense, they were the Mormon heartland so firmly Mormon and so firmly identified as Mormon that um, no one was going to question whether they were based on, the, on just the ideas that they were holding there. All right. Well, oh, sorry. Did you want to go, Kevin? Go ahead. Sorry. I, I just wanted to add, you should also be aware that there, there's plenty of diversity within the ranks of apologists as well. I mean, uh, sometimes people have the idea that, you know, that that's uh, uh, like a single single hive mind or something, and, and that's not true at all. I mean, uh, it, it's a little bit like high priest group sometimes uh, with the the various uh, opinions and and uh, perspectives on things. So there's there's plenty of diversity to go around. Okay, well, maybe along those lines, I think we have uh, time for one last question. And uh, like you said, there's a diversity of opinion among apologists. Now, uh, I've seen you guys blog long enough that I know that uh, each of you, and maybe one of the reasons that I'm kind of friends with each of you is, and what I like about you is that you're willing to say that there are areas where it would be a good thing if the church changed or that there are places where the church could improve, uh, where it could make amends. Um, what would you say to those people, some of whom are apologists, I know, who are against, quote, arc studying and believe that members should never criticize or critique or attempt to correct church leadership? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I, I, um, personally, I, I feel that my voice is much stronger uh, if, if I have the credibility of my own convictions. Uh, if I, I do disagree with the church on various issues, and, and I, I'm, I've you know gone on record as, as doing so, and uh, my willingness my willingness to do that uh, I think makes makes my voice stand out all the stronger uh, when when I strongly agree with the church, which I do on on most things. I mean, I, I love the church, I, I defend it, um, so. You know, there are issues that uh, you know my fellow apologists, you know, <laughs> totally disagree with me on, and uh, and uh, I'm, I'm an outlier on. But I I, I think I think um, you know I, I think it gives you a certain amount of street cred uh, to be willing to stand up for your own opinions, even when they diverge with with those of the church. Um, I would add that I think I think part of the thing about the church is what what is very highly valued in the LDS Church and what has a lot of currency is your loyalty to the church. 
And I think that has a huge amount of loyalty. I don't think there was any any scholar we've had who was more ruthlessly critical of the LDS Church than Hugh Nipley. I mean, he 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 had some scathing criticism of LDS culture and even the church. I mean, you can take his um, leaders versus managers talk as directly aimed at the LDS leadership. Now, how did he get away with it? Well, basically, he saved the Book of Abraham in many people's minds. Unibly had done had been so firmly advocating for the LDS Church, and had been such a champion of it, and was so well known as at it that he was in a position to offer that criticism. And um, I remember watching a documentary about it with um, Elder Neil A. Maxwell warmly talking about him and calling him the church's gadfly. Because he really was scathing. You ought to read some of his stuff on that. Um, and, um, but, you know, but he was, but he was loyal. And I think that is very highly prized in the LDS church. If you can dem- if you demonstrate that you are, that you have the church's best interests at heart, um, and that you are definitely committed to living in this church and making a go of it, I think you're allowed more latitude than people give credit for. That, that's a terrific point. I mean, Hugh Newley is kind of, in a way, the patron saint of Mormon apologists, and uh, and I, I certainly was heavily influenced by Newley, um, and both on my mission and, and in college, and uh, I, I I totally agree with Seth's point. Uh, for for him, the key was was uh, he was loyal. Everyone knew that uh, that he loved the church and had had the church's interests at heart. And once people know that, uh, you're given plenty of reign, uh, you know, to to raise criticisms as well. And that's been my experience. I mean. Uh, you know, people know that I've had some sharp criticisms of the church, but I've never had a problem, uh, you know, from the church, either locally or generally, uh, because people know I, I love the church, I, I defend it, I have its interests at heart, uh, and I, I'm loyal to it, uh, as to use such terminology. And once people know that, then, then you know, you're, you're given freedom to, to speak your mind on things. I think part of that is um, when you. Part of that is how you phrase the things that you say. Um, that um, that you give those who are still in the church a context for framing the rest of your argument. You don't just go running into a gospel doctrine class, yelling that Joseph used a seersaw in a hat. He didn't use the curtain between the gold plates. And, you know, I mean. You don't just go yelling that out of context into a gospel doctrine class. Um, it's how you phrase it. And it's how you present it to people and how willing you are to reach out to people who haven't yet learned these things, I think. And give them a context for placing that um, bit of historical data within a broader context. And, and there's kind of a talent involved there, Uh for being able to present things uh, in a way that, that you know, doesn't shock 
people unnecessarily and, and that is constructive. And and some people are better at it than others, but but uh, if, if you have that talent, then again you can um, uh, you, you can address issues that, that others might not be able to address. Right. You know, I, I'm sure that that uh, salamander letter lesson could have gone very horribly wrong if presented in the wrong way. But yeah, I mean that that's kind of the cha- that's kind of the challenge of um, of living in a group of people. I mean, and uh, this is something that um, it, this is something that our modern American culture doesn't generally understand. Um, the individual is so glorified in our culture today, and individuality, freedom of absolute freedom of action to say whatever you think, without regards to the consequences, and without regards to the feelings of anyone around you. It's glorified in our movies and in our culture. And um, something that's lost there is the ability to actually live in a group of people and take and take their feelings into account and take care of their feelings. All right, guys. It's been a, a lot of fascinating ideas tonight. I've really enjoyed the discussion, and like always, the hour has kind of flown by for me. Um, fair LDS is at, uh, fair LDS.org. Do, uh, each of you want to throw out your, your blogs and your internet projects, Kevin? Uh, my blog is by common consent, uh, dot com. I think it is. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I re- yeah, sorry. No, I no. regularly blog, blog at nine moons, which we're kind of uncertain on the status at the moment, but, um, nine but, moons. Uh, we'll see what the future holds. All right. Well, like always, the uh, discussion continues on the uh, website at mormonexpression.com. You can call us at 801-906-6722 or send us an email at mail at mormonexpression.com. Bridget, thanks for helping us out tonight. Anytime. Gentlemen, once again, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.